is Connie Seelum from the University of Washington, where she's professor of medicine and global health, global medicine and global health. Um, and she's speaking on a very hot topic now, uh, which pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, and data and the potential for the uh, eradication or prevention of transmission of this uh, virus, HIV. Connie? Well, thank you all for weathering traffic and coming early in the morning. And this is probably, the, I think, one of the first times in IS that we are talking about AR, use of antiretrovirals for prevention. And it's been a very exciting past year with uh, some interesting results and more to be coming soon. So I'll try to summarize that, the data and where we stand now and, and discuss a little bit about where we're heading. So when we talk about using antiretrovirals for HIV prevention, there's sort of three broad categories. There's prior to exposure, um, and we term that pre-exposure prophylaxis. And each of these strategies has advantages and challenges. So one of the advantages is we now have data. So if you practice evidence-based um, medicine, it's good to have data to guide your practice. And the two studies that have shown efficacy, I'll summarize in much greater detail, but basically they show moderate efficacy in the context of moderate adherence. And one of the challenges, probably the top challenge, is adherence. Taking medications for prevention versus treatment, I think, presents different challenges. Delivery is another challenge, which we'll touch on, cost-effectiveness and resistance. We've had recommendations, guidelines from CDC for a number of years for both uh, sexual as well as occupational post-exposure prophylaxis. And the advantages clearly are that it's a much shorter course, a one-month uh, course of treatment. But one, among the challenges are that we have really no robust efficacy data. And probably even more challenging is for people to really recognize what's a risky exposure. Now, in my practice, a lot of the people who come in for PEP actually have um, moderate or low-risk exposures, and I think it's very hard for people to uh, know when, when it's risky enough to take it. And then to present quickly enough to actually have efficacy if they actually were exposed. So uh, the guidelines recommend that you should start within 48 hours. Adherence um, and tolerability is another challenge. Probably when you think about it on a global perspective, this is not ever going to have a very large impact. It's hard to get the right drug to the right people after the right exposures. And then an, another area for which we uh, now have data, and I'll summarize this at the end, is use of ARVs for treatment also has public health benefits. And again, in terms of evidence-based medicine, we now have very strong data that shows you, we make people less infectious when we put them on treatment, and I'll uh, touch on that at the end. The challenges, and again, from a global perspective, have to do with scale-up and trying to get the many people who are eligible for treatment on treatment, getting people to know their status, a lot of resources needed to do that, as well as the ability for people to maintain high adherence over um, their lifetime, cumulative toxicity, less of an issue now with current drugs, and resistance. So 
This is sort of the schema for thinking about using antiretrovirals for HIV prevention. When we now, from the next part, I'm going to focus on pre-exposure prophylaxis. And I'll summarize the data, and both the animal data and the human trials have really so far focused on the use of tenofovir-based um, approaches, either tenofovir as a sole agent in a gel or a tablet, or co-formulated with uh, emtricitabine with, um, as a tablet. So looking back over the last 10 years, it's been a bit of a roller coaster for PrEP. The idea was first proposed in about 2001, and the first trials were planned were in Southeast Asia, in Cambodia, uh, where they were planning to look at PrEP with sex workers. But because of the idea came before there was really much of a scale-up of ARVs for treatment, this was met with a lot of protest, and that study never got off the ground. The second half of the last decade was time with a lot of effort put in to look at both safety and then subsequently efficacy of tenofovir-based PrEP. And we're now at this period where we're beginning to get results. And as you probably know, that last year was heralded by the first positive uh, efficacy shown for any microbicide, tenofovir gel, as well as a uh, moderate efficacy with uh, emtricitabine tenofovir tablets in men. And so about almost a year ago at the Vienna AIDS conference, uh, this looks a little bit demure after this sitting politely clapping, uh, they actually, the investigators who presented the Caprisa results were met with a very um, emotional standing room uh, sort of standing ovation because people were so excited that after all this work on microbicides, finally there was proof of concept that you could deliver ARVs topically and show efficacy. And time acknowledged uh, the significance of the IPREX, the oral uh, imtricitabine tenofovir study, as being the single um, most important medical breakthrough of last year. So last year was a important year for HIV prevention with new biomedical strategies. So before going into those trials in more de detail, I want to sort of summarize what are the real principles behind thinking about using antiretrovirals for prevention. And they're fairly simple. It's one is we want to get the right drug, which um, would have high safety, high efficacy, and induce minimal resistance. Getting it at the right place, this is why people are looking at both topical as well as oral formulations, because ideally, since most transmission occurs sexually, you'd want high concentrations in the genital tract. And then at the right time, and this is one of the more challenging areas, because ideally, we would like to have drugs that could be used prior to exposure with a short onset of activity and yet a long half-life and to allow, to be forgiving in terms of uh, potentially variable adherence. So since most of the efforts so far have focused on tenofovir-based regimens, how do these drugs measure up? First, potency, very high. They block both uh, HIV-1 and 2, all subtypes, and viruses found in both early and late infection, R5 and X4 viruses. They um, both tenofovir and emtricitabine block initial infection. They act early in uh, H the HIV life cycle. And FTC is ra rapidly um, metabolized. So 
it could be something that you could use shortly before exposure. They're safe. They have very favorable safety profiles and high tolerability. They're easy to take with a low pill burden, no food restrictions, and very few drug interactions. However, one of the biggest concerns of a lot of clinicians and public health officials has been, would these drugs uh, somehow compromise our, our ability to use them in treatment because they, if they do induce resistance and breakthrough infections, uh, will we be shooting ourselves in the foot with um, uh, drugs that are very important to our treatment uh, profile? So because, because of this issue about resistance, it's one of the reasons why it's, it's thought that it's important to learn about both tenofovir as well as uh, intracytobine and tenofovir for PrEP because they may have differential cost, efficacy, and potential for resistance. So now going back to the two studies I mentioned, first CAPRISA, which was the first uh, study to have results last year. And this was a, a phase uh, two, large phase two study with almost 900 women who were uh, at least 18 years of age in the Durban area of South Africa. And what they studied was coitally dependent gel where women were given applicators and they were told to use one applicator within 12 hours before sex and 12 hours after sex, and to use no more than two applicators in 24 hours. In reality, I think what most women did, um, based on the data, is they used it very close to sex, like within an hour to two before and after sex. This was a very young population. The average age was 23. They were largely unmarried. They came from uh, rural and urban settings. It was stopped in uh, 2010 and showed a very good safety profile. Interestingly, even though it was topically applied to the vagina, they did notice a little increase in um, diarrhea compared to the placebo arm. And that was published about almost a year ago in Science. The data showed uh, here in the Kaplan-Meier curve showed a significant reduction of, by the end of the follow-up, 39% lower uh, HIV infection rate in the tenofovir gel arm, but also really important to highlight that in the placebo arm, the incidence was 9 per 100 women. So that means almost 10% of women became infected. So when you think about microbicides and PrEP, there are populations in the world where we really need to find more effective prevention strategies. And even with a 39% efficacy in the tenofovir gel arm, we're looking at almost 6% uh, incidence. So we have a lot of work ahead in terms of finding prevention strategies. The CAPRISA trial found no uh, K65R mutations, so it looked like tenofovir gel did not induce resistance in the breakthrough infections. And a bonus was they found even higher protection against herpes with 51% um, efficacy. Caprice also taught us adherence is important. I mean, you could have probably uh, predicted this, but they were able to really quantify it. So when you broke it down in terms of number of sex acts reported by number of applicators used, among the women who um, used applicators over 80% of uh, sex acts, they had 54% efficacy. But at the other end of the spectrum, for women who used applicators with less than half of sex acts, they had 28% efficacy. And importantly, 42% of women in this study fell into that group. So even in the context of a clinical trial with a lot of adherence support, it, it was hard for women to 
sometimes predict when they had sex and to be able to use applicators. So we need to look for more uh, user-friendly approaches that are not uh, coitally dependent, I think. So when we go back to those principles about right drug, right place, right time, let's think about uh, tenofovir gel. And what we've learned from Capriso 4 and some subsequent studies is, number one, you get incredibly high levels of act, uh, activated uh, tenofovir diphosphate in cervical vaginal secretions as well as tissue, like 10 to the 6, which is at least 100 to 1,000 fold higher than what you get with oral dosing of tenofovir. And those levels, when they measured them in the secretions of women who were in the uh, Caprisa study had very high correlation with whether or not women seroconverted to HIV and herpes. So we now have a biomarker, which is really useful. A study that was uh, presented at CROI this year uh, from the Microbicide Trials Network, when they basically did a crossover study and women took uh, the tenofovir orally daily, used the gel vaginally daily, or used both daily, they found that levels in the vagina were 100-fold higher uh, with, in vaginal tissue with gel than with oral dosing. So we know you can get really um, effective dosing with uh, gel and that you didn't get any benefit by doing both. <clears throat> However, the big question, and until we have more data, we don't know the answer, is how much do you need? Maybe that's much more than we need for protection. So a lot of people are trying to work on this uh, issue that now we have a biomarker, but how do we really measure what threshold is needed for efficacy? So stay tuned. There's going to be a lot of interesting work in this area. So now let's talk about oral PrEP. And last year was a landmark year for oral PrEP. As I mentioned, this is accumulation of about a decade worth of effort. And Bob Grant from UCSF uh, conducted a very challenging study where he enrolled almost 2,500 sex with men um, from uh, three continents and um, 11 sites. And they were randomized um, to either receive oral amtricitabine, tenofovir, or placebo. These were primarily two-thirds of the men came from the Andes, from um, Ecuador and Peru, but they also had sites in the U.S., South Africa, Thailand, and Brazil. These were very young men. Half of them were uh, less than uh, 25 years of age, and they were also incredibly high risk. The median number of partners in the three months prior to enrollment was 18. So they succeeded in getting the population who might benefit the most from PrEP into this study. It was, uh, the study was completed at the end of last year, published at the, in the New England Journal, and showed that they had excellent safety. There was a little bit of nausea reported in the first month that went away. And they had a very small 1% decline in bone mineral density, and that was um, presented at CROI. So this was a really important uh, advance for men who have sex with men, for whom we have very few um, evidence-based prevention strategies. They also presented at CROI updated data from uh, ongoing follow-up. Uh, so Compared to the New England Journal, which was 44% efficacy when they took the complete data set, it was 42%. And not surprising, they found no uh, reduction in herpes acquisition, which shouldn't be surprising because we don't get high enough levels of activated tenofovir in the bloodstream when you orally dose it to protect against herpes. And that's very different than when you dose it uh, with a gel. 
Again, IPREX taught us that adherence is important, that if you broke it down by how much of the study drug people took, you, you reached very high efficacy, 68% efficacy, if men took um, the pills 90% of days. But it's very much a dose relationship. When they measured drug levels in the blood, they found that um, only about half of the men in the control samples um, had drug level. So adherence was challenging, I think, is one of the lessons. And they only found drug levels that were barely detectable in two out of the uh, 34 breakthrough infections. So it also showed us, again, um, that the drug levels are good biomarkers and we'll continue to use those in ongoing studies. With respect to resistance, they found no resistance in the men who became infected after enrollment. They had 10 men who re re retrospectively were identified to be seroconverters. Eight were in the placebo arm, two were in the m tenofovir arm. And they found one case of uh, acquired multi-resistant HIV in the placebo arm and two cases of M184 mutations in the uh, two uh, M-tricytobine tenofovir seroconverters. So I think what we learned from IPREX with the oral dosing for PrEP is that we shouldn't be surprised about lack of resistance in the seroconverters because I showed you on the prior slide that most of them weren't taking drugs, so you have to have drug to select resistance. Transmitted resistance does occur independent of PrEP, and we should really work hard to avoid uh, giving PrEP to men who may be seroconverting, as we learned from the two cases of M184 resistant mutations in seroconverters. And then the third trial to be complete was uh, there was a press release in early May that announced that a trial that was being done in Africa by Family Health International called the FEMPREP trial was being stopped early. It was supposed to be uh, 3,900 uh, high-risk women, and they had enrolled um, almost about half the women. And they uh, stopped the study early because of lack of efficacy. The number of uh, infections was equal in both arms. Uh, so there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of speculation uh, about why was this compared to IPREX. Same drug, they used uh, m tricytobine tenofovir. Um, is it because of adherence that women weren't taking the drug? Is it because there was something about interactions between all the women had to be on hormonal contraception? And so they did find that there was a higher pregnancy rate in the oral contraceptive arm was there some interaction between intracytabine tenofovir and oral contraceptives? Did the drug not uh, achieve high enough levels in the vagina? Um, is there, for biologic reasons, lower efficacy in women? Many questions, um, and honestly, we really don't know the answers. They're still conducting exit visits, so we'll have more data by the end of uh, this year. So what can we conclude so far about PrEP? These were incredibly difficult trials to launch and implement. These are very important uh, results. We've worked so hard for over the last 30 years to find new prevention tools, and finally we're in an era where some things are beginning to work, so it's really exciting. I think we also now clearly have evidence that adherence is going to be one of the, perhaps the biggest Achilles heel of um, biomedical approaches to prevention. What motivates people to do something on a daily basis or around sex to reduce their risk? 
We have good biomarkers. The drug levels correlated very well with efficacy in both Capriso 4 and IPREX. And we shouldn't sort of lull ourselves into thinking that pill counts and self-report are accurate. The IPREX study quantified this very well and clearly both way overestimate adherence. So we do need biomarkers like drug levels. And I want you to be aware that the picture is still incomplete, that we really need data in different populations. We need data in injection drug users, gay men, which we now have, high-risk women, and serodiscordant couples. And we need data about safety, adherence, and efficacy for different regimens, tenofovir gel, tenofovir tablets, emtricitabine tenofovir tablets. And those data are coming. There are four studies that you should be aware of. One is, um, is completed and should have data out soon, potentially even as soon as uh, the IS meeting in Rome in a uh, couple of months. This was a study uh, conducted in Botswana with young heterosexual men and women. They enrolled 1,200 um, men and women, and they used emtricitabine tenofovir. So keep your eyes out because they should have data soon. Another study done by CDC in Bangkok was focusing on injection drug users, and they enrolled 2,400 men. Most of them were on, uh, most were men, and most were on um, basically daily, um, directly observed therapy because they were in methadone programs. So that'll give us uh, the only data that we'll have on uh, tenofovir in injection drug users. Study that I'm leading in uh, Kenya and Uganda called the Partners Prep Study enrolled almost 4,800 HIV serodiscordant couples, many of whom want to have children. So we'll have data um, in the next year to two years on safety efficacy in heterosexual populations. And lastly, an important study conducted by uh, the Microbicide Trials Network in Africa is looking at tenofovir, emtricitabine tenofovir, and again the vaginal gel, but now used daily. So that, is a, that study um, has now fully enrolled. It slides a little bit out of date, and they should have data by 2013. So a lot of effort going into this field. And these results will tell us which drugs work, which ones are safe, and costs, which will inform which drugs will actually be used for larger scale PrEP rollout. So let's focus just the last part of the, my comments about PrEP are, are we ready to give PrEP to men in the U.S.? And the CDC in early uh, this year published interim guidance uh, based on the IPREX results. And they have committed themselves to update this by the end of this year and provide more uh, information, as well as WHO will be doing the same. So based on the data we have so far, the questions that we have to think about is, who would you target for PrEP? Who is high risk? How do you ascertain that? Should it be high risk men? Uh, right now that we have no evidence of efficacy in, in heterosexual women, so um, all the data for oral PrEP is based on men who have sex with men. Um, where would you deliver it? STD clinics, HIV clinics, public health facilities, primary care clinics. Some have advocated we should take it out of the clinic and into the pharmacy. But clearly, if we do that, we need to be very careful and make sure that people um, have HIV testing. And I think that's pharmacy-based prep is not going to happen in the uh, near future. So if, if we're really going to use this new tool and have an impact, our biggest challenge is we have to get high coverage of the highest risk population. Otherwise, it'll be what some call a boutique intervention for those who can afford it, who might be worried, but may not be the highest risk people. 
So how do you ask, ascertain who's at risk? And as providers, I hope that all of us are remembering to take sexual histories. Sometimes you get more information than you want. But if there was a CDC um, publication about five years ago that talked about how to do HIV prevention and the care of people with HIV. And I think one of the things that I'm trying to remind myself to do as a clinician is ask about partners. And I'm surprised how many of the men I see, primarily men, um, have partners who have not been tested. So we should be continuing to ask about their sexual behavior, their partner serostatus, disclosure, and other things to find out do they have a partner uh, who's at risk. The CDC guidelines um, are reminding us that we should, if you should really confirm that people are HIV negative. And if someone has viral-like symptoms, it could indicate that they had acute HIV, that you should either wait for a month and document that they're negative a month later, or do a P24 antigen or PCR test. Make sure that they have ongoing risk. So really try to think about um, are you getting, are you considering giving PrEP to the men who have the highest risk? Do they have normal renal function? Screen for hepatitis B if they're uh, susceptible, vaccinate if they're chronically infected. Um, Mtricitabine tenofovir is actually an, an excellent drug for um, hepatitis B. And then screen and treat for other sexually transmitted infections. Currently, all our data are based only on Mtricitabine tenofovir and daily use. Many people want to know about intermittent use. We don't have those data yet. There are studies underway to ask that. And you should only give a three-month supply. You should repeat the HIV testing at that time. You should provide counseling. And the counseling is really important, not just about drug adherence, but about risk reduction. The fact that we now know that you have to take it pretty uh, reliably. The, the better you are at adhering, the more effective it will be. Um, warn them that they may have mild nausea in the first few weeks and to persist through that. And really take the time to discourage men from thinking about using intermittent PrEP because we do not know yet whether there's efficacy if you take it just on the weekend or um, before uh, they know they're going to be sexually active. And certainly we should be counseling people to not share their drugs. HIV testing should be done every two to three months and document a negative result. I think the FDA is beginning to hold um, meetings to this is probably going to be part of the requirement if they um, add a new prevention indication for uh, mtricitabine tenofovir. You need to encourage them and support them in adherence and help them find strategies to do this on a daily basis. Continue to do risk reduction counseling and then test creatinine three months after starting PrEP and then annually thereafter. So these are what the interim guidance guidelines are for PrEP. When you if test someone and they have a breakthrough infection on PrEP, um, you should do a genotype to see if they've acquired either K65R or um, M184V mutations. And if they have chronic hepatitis B infection and you stop uh, intracytobine tenofovir, you should be checking their LFTs due to the um, known uh, possibility that they may have an acute hepatitis flare. What about payment? This is a huge issue. It's not a cheap intervention. And CDC is actively working with health insurance companies and payers to try to sort out uh, coverage for PrEP. And so far, the insurance companies have indicated willingness to consider this, so stay tuned. 
Cost-effectiveness, another very understandable question. It could be very cost-effective based on modeling that was presented at CROI. If the efficacy is high, and we'll wait for the re remaining studies to see what the range of efficacy is in different populations, if we can get the cost down, um, and if we, and very importantly, if we can give it to people who are truly at risk. And that is, again, coming back to that important point about doing good risk assessment. Will men want to take it? You know, I, from what I can tell from the providers I've talked with, it's, there hasn't been a huge demand yet, um, and it may be that um, we haven't really promoted this yet. But I think that we're going to have to change our messaging about the drugs because many men have seen posters like this that suggest that the drugs have toxicity. So why would you want to take a drug for prevention that might make you not feel well? So we're going to have to do some re-messaging about the safety profile of emtricitabine tenofovir. We won't know everything we want to know uh, about current PrEP studies. We won't know about uh, safety and efficacy in um, pregnant and breastfeeding women, which is a huge need in Africa. Adolescents, which are, as I showed you from the Caprisa data, young women in sub-Saharan Africa are at very high risk. We have excluded people with chronic active hepatitis B infection from most of the studies. And we won't know about longer-term use or use of tenofovir gel for anal sex. Some of those studies are just now starting, so we eventually will know it, but not for a few years. We won't know about adherence or efficacy with intermittent use for another uh, few years. Resistance, if we, the studies all tested people monthly. What happens if we do move to every three months for HIV testing? Will we see more resistance? That's an important question. Will it be transmitted? And a very important question is, will people relax their, um, their, their risk behaviors? Will they have more partners, use condoms less if they think that they are partially protected by PrEP? And if they do, how much will that uh, affect efficacy? So those are really important questions that require additional study. So just to wrap up on PrEP, we now have data that shows um, we can achieve moderate efficacy. Um, for oral FTC uh, tenofovir among men who have sex with men. Adherence is really important. And we'll have more data within the next uh, two years about other populations. There will be more guidance coming from CDC and WHO. And that providers should be getting prepared because the demand may increase, particularly if uh, insurance companies cover it. Many people say, so how can we even consider using antiretrovirals for prevention when we have a treatment gap? And I think that we need to do a much better job at reallocating resources to things that work. So we now have data that PrEP works, and we'll have data soon about whether the gel works um, from the MTN study. So as we continue to find new strategies for ARVs for prevention, we must try to not make this a treatment versus prevention argument. And part of that is that we now have data The treatment is prevention. And I'll just end the talk with summarizing some really exciting data that you probably saw in a press release um, in the last couple of weeks. And that study um, I'll mention in a moment, but I want to say that this comes on the heels of a number of studies, including our own, from observational data that suggested that uh, you could actually make people much less infectious by uh, ART. In our study of about 3,400 HIV-discordant couples in a herpes suppression trial, we looked at the question among the 
about 10% who initiated ART during follow-up and found only one out of 103 infections occurred when someone was on ART. And that one case occurred when someone uh, started ART and was probably only partially viral, virally suppressed when the partner became infected. So we found a 92% reduction in HIV transmission in this uh, cohort of African serodiscordant couples. And we also found that viral load really predicted uh, transmission risk. Among, when you stratified by CD4 count, we found that if you had a viral load greater than 50,000 copies, you had a fourfold higher risk of transmission. So then there were other studies like that that had observational data that said treatment makes people less infectious. Not zero, but it much, you know, 90 plus percent reduction. A study that was very challenging to do that was led by Mike Cohen called HP10052 tried to empirically ask this question in almost 1,800 HIV discordant couples where the HIV positive partner had a CD4 count um, between 350 and 550 and they were randomized to either get ART immediately or at CD4 of 250. Followed the couples for five years and they looked at transmission and disease progression. And what they reported in a press release about three weeks ago four weeks ago is that um, there's only one transmission in the immediate heart um, arm compared to 27 in the delayed ART arm. And so this was a 96% reduction in transmission. So it's going to, it already has ignited a great debate about when to start and the potential use of ART for public health implications. So just to wrap up, we now have data that suggests the ARVs can be used either orally or as a gel delivered vaginally for pre-exposure prophylaxis. We have ongoing trials that within the next one to two years are going to tell us much more about safety, efficacy, adherence, and resistance in other populations, so stay tuned. Uh, we need bridging data. Those studies are starting now in adolescents, pregnant, and breastfeeding women. We're going to have to really grapple with how to actually deliver this. If we're going to have this work and have a public health impact, we're going to have to be very smart about how to get the cost down, how to target, and how to deliver PrEP. Rollout is not going to be simple. Um, I'm very aware of this when I think about it both domestically and internationally. However, it's really exciting having sort of slogged away in the HIV prevention field for most of my career. It's really exciting to have evidence-based tools. So let's be smart, let's be prepared, and meet the challenges. And lastly, it's also very exciting to know that what we do for people for clinical care can also have public health um, benefits in terms of uh, using drugs for treatment. And we need to expand coverage. So I like this quote by Samuel Johnson. Um, for many years in the HIV prevention field, it really felt like the glass was half, uh, less than half full. Many things didn't work. We now have a period where things are beginning to work. The glass is more than half full. There are clearly challenges, but as Samuel Johnson said, if we don't, nothing will be done if, if we, um, what, nothing will ever be attempted if all possible objections must first be overcome. So thank you for your attention and I welcome your questions. Thank you, Connie. That was a wonderful talk. That was a very important topic. We have time for one or two questions. If, if you pass them to 
people in the aisles collecting, we'll collect them. Is there any data on HIV-negative patients taking uh, Truvada for hepatitis B and their seroconversion rate to hepatitis B? That's uh, not to my knowledge. It's a good question. Um, so seroconversion to HIV, they must mean, is that right? Is there an HIV-negative person taking Truvada for hepatitis B and what is their risk of HIV? I don't think that people have really designed the studies to ask that question, so I don't believe there are any data on that. Do we have any data on the use of intermittent PrEP at this point? We, the only data we have, and I didn't summarize this because um, it's all from Africa, they did a study in heterosexual serodiscordant couples in Uganda and high-risk men who have sex with men and women in Kenya. And they found that uh, the adherence to intermittent PrEP was much lower than with daily um, PrEP. And particularly postcoital dosing, interestingly, was lower in all populations they studied. So what's not clear yet is whether it's actually any easier for people to remember to do something twice a week than every day. And I, a study that is about to get started in the U.S. and multiple sites will be looking at intermittent PrEP and looking both at adherence but also at pharmacokinetics, so we'll learn a lot in the next year or two, so stay tuned. Would, would you think that PrEP would be useful in uh, men who have sex with men uh, with, who, have, who are in a monogamous serodiscordant uh, relationship? Yeah, I think that it, it could be. Um, there are couples who have made decisions to not use condoms, and in that setting with a known positive partner, especially if the positive partner is not on treatment, um, might be very appropriate. If, I think you'd have to ask um, a lot of questions if the partner is on treatment and is virally suppressed, is it a cost-effective approach uh, for the negative partner? So a little bit would depend on the uh, circumstances, but yes, I think that's appropriate. There's a question about post-exposure prophylaxis and how much, what is the, the time in which it will be effective? So they're a uh, really good question. The animal data and a few breakthrough infections from humans, I think, indicate that you probably need to start it ideally within 48 hours and sooner the better. And I think that's been one of the biggest challenges with PEP, especially if ex exposure happens over the weekend, is someone tries to find someone who will prescribe it, and then it takes a day or two before they actually get into clinic. But ideally, it should be within 48 hours. I think many providers uh, do provide it even if the, they come in after that because there may still be some benefit, but it probably goes down after about 72 hours. And last, um, have, you have you started using PrEP in your clinics or practice? Yeah, no, I have not prescribed it. I've talked with several patients, and they're, they're whose partners are, so I, I see HIV-infected patients primarily, um, and have asked some of them who have multiple partners about whether they would refer their partners for it. So I'm beginning to have discussions with people and uh, trying to get 
more of some of my a few recalcitrant patients to get their partners tested. Um, but it's, a, it's definitely a discussion. I'd be interested with a show of hands. Does anyone here prescribe PrEP? So I think yeah, it's, it's slow early to, days yet. Yeah, yeah, it's early. Yeah. It's only been six months. Uh, here's an epidemiologic question. Does the, um, how does treatment of HIV with heart affect the overall incidence of transmission? Um, in the studies we have, the 502, they uh, it decreased it. But as patients live longer, um, will, is, is there going to be a countervailing? Yeah, it's a really good question. So that study was actually designed uh, the, in the very beginning. They, the people who designed the study felt like the important question is over longer-term follow-up, would people be able to maintain high adherence, maintain viral suppression, and uh, reduce transmission? They stopped the study when the average follow-up had been about two years because the, the transmission impact was so um, strong. So we won't... Honestly, I don't think we'll know what the question, the answer to the question about longer-term ART use. Um, but we do know from our work and others that viral load is by far the most powerful predictor of transmission. So if you have someone who's out five, six years who's no longer virally suppressed, they clearly are at risk of um, transmitting. Thank you very much, Connie. This has been a wonderful start to the program this morning. Our next speaker is Dr. Rodriguez, who is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Clinical Director of